0: No purchase necessary. Void We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 18th, 2019, The Rescue Squad Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. We are farther flung than usual this week. John Dickerson of CBS is CBS's CBS. CBS's 60 Minutes is in California. Hello, John Dickerson.
0: Sibilance, sibilance. Hello, David. And, and, and hello, Emily. Hello.
2: And that's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. And she is, I'm just going to guess she's in New Haven. I have no idea. But that's, that's a safe guess. Good guess. Sweet. Awesome. On today's GabFest... By the way, it was so nice being in Canada. I loved our Canada trip.
1: That uh, was so fun. Thank you, was, Canada. It, Thank you, Toronto.
2: Yeah, it,
0: and and the and the people. Oh my God! I mean, they were just. It was that was the best part of all. I know. All of it. I mean, C- Canadians. You guys.
2: Canadians have such a reputation for being rude and horrible, <laughs> and, and it yet, was surprising they were really nice and welcoming. It was. I was. That's it's true. really went against national stereotypes.
1: They were way more nice and enthusiastic than we really deserved. Honestly.
2: That is true.
0: You mean in broad terms, or you mean specifically with respect to our performance that evening?
1: I think both, actually.
2: (laughs) All right. Uh, On this week's show, we're back in America. We will talk about President Trump's racist attack on the squad. Then we're going to ask whether the census really has been saved from the predations of the Trump administration and its citizenship failed, would-be, not-happening citizenship question. Then, should we go back to the moon? It's the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing, the first uh, walking on the moon. Should we bother to go back there? Plus, we're going to have cocktail chatter. And, dear ones, we have another live Gabfest coming up. We're going to be in the Twin Cities on Wednesday, September 18th. We're going to be at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can get tickets for that show, which are going on sale, I think, today at slate.com slash live. We are really excited. I don't think we've ever done a show. We have not done a show in the Twin Cities. So I'm very, very excited to go there. As always, there will be a pre-show cocktail hour for certain bunch of lucky duckies who buy their tickets early. So if you're into that, you probably should move quickly. Wednesday, September 18th, slate.com slash live for tickets in St. Paul, Minnesota. All right. So Trump versus the squad, the squad versus Pelosi, Everyone versus everyone. John, what is this triangular, or maybe it's less triangular anymore? But what is this this set of conflicts about? Where did it come from? What is wow. its root?
0: Well, uh, where did it come from? Wow. Well, you could go all the way back to the beginning of the Republic. So, I think it came from a couple of things. You had Nancy Pelosi and these four freshman members of Congress. We're in a tussle that's a part of a longer standing tussle and a familiar tussle between Pelosi an institutionalist who has to keep the entire House in mind. Um, I mean, it it came down to a specific vote, I should say. I mean, it's about a specific vote having to do with the funding for uh, the immigration detention centers, but it's more broadly about this conflict between the liberal members of the House conference who want to move quickly on a number of different issues in confronting the president on his policy grounds, whether it's on immigration or health care or any other issue, and then who also want to confront the administration on corruption grounds uh, in terms of impeaching the president or going after Secretary of Labor uh, Acosta because of his Jeffrey Epstein plea deal when he was U.S. attorney in in Florida. So there is this broader fight going on in the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi— poked the bear, if, if I can use that expression, in an interview with Maureen Dowd, in which she said, basically, these four don't, they have a big Twitter following, but they only have four votes. And she tried to minimize them. This is not the first time she's done that. That, of, that kicked up this Fight. Okay, Donald Trump weighs in with the comments that have been the focus of this week, saying that basically these four, if they don't like America, they should go back to their countries. We should note, of course, that they're all U.S. citizens. Three of them were born here. But most importantly, they are all duly elected members of Congress. And so that language uh, is very familiar to anybody who's been awake in American life, telling people who are basically non-white to go back to their country is a standard racist attack. And we should remember that from this president, it's not just... So he jumped into the fight uh, with this set of tweets, sort of took Nancy Pelosi's side in a strange way, sort of saying, I bet she would be happy to you know, get them quick airfare out of the country. And before I shut up, we should remember that there's a context here, that the president, when he was a campaign, said that it was impossible for an Indiana-born judge of Mexican heritage to rule fairly on his Trump University case because of his Mexican heritage. When I asked him, thanks to uh, Mary Hager, the executive producer of Face the Nation, whether he thought a Muslim judge could ever rule fairly on anything having to do with him, he said no. And so he has consistently consistently... consistently grouped people's behaviors based on their ethnic origin. And obviously, he was the nation's lead chief birther, claiming that President Obama was born in Kenya. So this comes in, obviously, a context of um, this uh, kind of behavior throughout his history. And then we have the the kind of permission structure this created, which is, I think, a part of the story also, which is that at a rally on uh, Wednesday night, the audience chanted, send her back, which is uh, presumably uh, in reference to a uh, congresswoman, Omar, and obviously shows the way in which the president's comments transfer into now a rallying cry for his supporters at this
2: rally. Emily, why is it definitively racist to tell someone to go back where they came from when that place they came from is the United States? Detroit.
1: (laughs) Because this is a phrase and a command that has been invoked against non white foreigners for our whole history. You know, it was invoked against Jews and Irish people and Italians back when we were all considered not white in the late 19th, early 20th century. And now it's the turn of people from other countries. So that seems obvious to me. And I also understand the politics. Trump is planning to run effectively on racism and white nationalism. It didn't work for him in 2018, but it did work in 2016. And it's his go-to play. And I get it. He's trying to make Ilhan Omar and um, these other congresswomen the face of the Democratic Party. And he thinks that's either he thinks that's a winning play for him or he's just tempted to do it anyway in order to get a lot of attention. I have to say I am having trouble pretending to be a kind of neutral political observer in this. I found that rally on Wednesday night so chilling. I just feel like as a citizen, like we have crossed some very frightening line. And I know there have been other line crossings before, but that was horrendous to have the president of the United States talking about a newly elected member of Congress Who is vulnerable to that kind of invective and hatred? Like something absolutely violent could happen to her or someone like her. And he was encouraging the crowd to act that way. And they were completely falling into line. And I, it's just it's not okay for that to be happening in our country. It's really scary. And I just can't figure out how to, like, pretend that the sort of normal political lens is, like, the acceptable one here. It feels to me like we're past that. And I especially feel that way because I am so upset that um, Lindsey Graham and Susan Collins and other Republican members of Congress. Oh, and Trump also at this rally are invoking Elon Omar's comments about Israel as an excuse for vilifying her in this way. And as a Jewish person, I just like leave us out of this. You are not really our friends. You are using us. And I just am so troubled by all of this.
2: I mean, this. Yeah, Emily, I'm so with you. And this 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 turn that Trump has made, which Republicans have now aligned themselves with. They were unwilling to really out- outwardly align themselves with his "go back to where you came from" remarks. But instead, they've moved to this: "Oh, they hate America. They're anti-Semitic. They're anti. They hate Israel. They're communists. They're socialists. None of which is true. And even even if it were true, it wouldn't matter. These are elected members of Congress who are working to improve." the country that, that is their country, and in, in the case of Omar, it's even more powerful. When immigrants come and so embrace the system and are so want to be American, they, are, they take part in the political process. That is, that is the most American thing to do. And the idea that dissent, the idea that criticism of policy, the idea that wishing to improve the country, to change the country is unpatriotic, that it's un-American, is, is the most foul, revolting, and dangerous idea that is possible and it is beyond disturbing that the republican party as a whole is willing to countenance this idea that that because Omar or Ocasio-Cortez has criticisms of Trump administration policies or criticisms of economic inequality or even criticisms of Israel that that, that makes them beyond the bounds of normal political debate is insane it's dangerous as hell and if we if we don't return to some some political norms around this the country is truly fucked we will be having you know there will be prison camps there'll be you know political prisoners there'll be assassinations we're going to be we're going to be in a truly truly terrible place so i it's i'm just i'm so concerned in the same way that you are emily
0: We should remember Mitch McConnell responding to all of this, said the president wasn't a racist, which is different than saying his remarks themselves were racist. But that doesn't that's not my point. My point is that he said, you know, everybody's got to tone down the rhetoric. What's I think lost in this is that the president has a special task. His rhetoric, this is is the presidential tradition, not this specific president. As the representative of the entire country, the tradition is that presidents seek to unify and also just that they have a higher standard, that incitement is at the opposite end of that standard. And so the fact that this is now basically an open and accepted idea that the president is inciting division, this used to be the kind of thing that Bob Corker would say or Paul Ryan would say, you know, off the record. It's now accepted that the president is inciting for the purposes of both Solidifying his base, which is becoming ever more solid, but then also trying to bait, um, and we should talk about the politics of all of this, uh, trying to bait uh, Democrats. This is at 100% at odds with the traditional role of the job. And so when somebody defends the president by saying, oh, well, they said these awful things about him, they are putting a first-term congressperson on the same level as the president. That's just not the way it has been in traditional American life. Secondly, when they talk about the awful things that have been done, it's it's an appeal to negative partisanship. So the same thing that in, was so prevalent in 2016 where – Republicans would say, well, whatever you may say about Donald Trump, we really don't like Hillary Clinton. So it removes judging anybody by an actual individual standard, and instead just appeals to the the negative partisan feelings about the about the other. So it's actually not a defense of, of, of President Trump's behavior. It's just changing the topic. And the final thing I would say is that I'm out here at the Hoover Institution and been interviewing experts all week long about the state of America, the state of democracy, both in America and all over the world. And something that people here are really concerned about is identity politics and what it's doing to the country, the the, the kind of spiral we all feel like we are in. And, the, and, and this is something I've, the president is appealing to directly. And so when I say, you know, what are the big issues the next president should take care of or that this president, if he were reelected, should take care of, the idea of repairing the country and getting out of this cycle is very high on the list of things a president should take care of. So, again, it's not only that the president is acting directly in opposition to the traditional role, but he's actually also not dealing with one of the major challenges that the country faces, which is that we're tearing each other apart. He's actually making it worse. And that is what makes this whole thing different.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, just think back to the both the Clinton and Obama presidencies. There was so much made about oh, oh, the dignity of the office, and oh, President Obama's shaming the dignity of the office by wearing by a, wearing a brown suit. tie or a tan suit, or what you know, by hosting a, a rapper at the White House or whatever nonsense it is. And and that was all you know, rank hypocrisy. And I, I think that there's so much of the blame for what's going on here. Is a media ecosystem, particularly, basically a right-wing media ecosystem, that never takes on the loathsome behavior, which is against the the grand traditions of the presidency and the grand traditions of American politics that President Trump represents, and and that right-wing media ecosystem, which is which is this you know very very effective propaganda machine, but it means that the president essentially always g- gets affirmation, no matter what he does, no matter what he does he gets affirmation for it. And that is a terrible that's a terrible place to be. I mean there there should this should be universally deplored. The attacks on Ocasio Cortez and Omar and Presley and Talib should be universally deplored publicly. Not to say you couldn't criticize them for whatever policies they view views they have, but the way the president went about it should have been absolutely disavowed instantly by everybody. But no. I mean not not by members of the party, not by the media that supports them. And and thus, the president can continue and grow grow ever more so.
1: I also worry about the mainstream media's coverage of this in that the president spread lies about Elon Omar. They are just lies. And in the course of debunking them, the mainstream media just dutifully repeats them every single time, even though we know from the research that that lodges these wrong facts in people's heads. And there has to be a better way of dealing with this. Like, every time I feel like Trump kind of wins by losing. And it it's so frustrating to watch. I think I'm especially— distressed by all this right now because I've been watching these two shows about Norway, one called Occupied, one the called the Heavy Water War. And they're both just about this problem of what do you do when an alien force, in that case, you know, the first show is about Russia occupying Norway. The second one is about the time of Nazi Germany. And you just watch people struggle with how to appease and accommodate and collaborate. And I worry that we are going to look back at this as like some pre-period in which our nation was in greater peril than we're willing to really grapple with. And it sounds kind of crazy to say that until something really terrible happens, but we're just not doing enough to like fortify ourselves against it.
0: So... This, it seems to me, gets into a, a political question, which is, you know, what this is, I mean, this is about racism and appealing to division in America for the purposes of maintaining power or increasing it. So that's really, that's what this is all about. And, uh, but, but adjacent to it is how does the party in opposition to the president and uh, manage the next period of, of time. And the debate seems to me to be uh, between the institutionalist response, which is Nancy Pelosi's response, which is essentially the House of Representatives and American political power is gained through a variety of different methods, not simply by being uh, forthrightly liberal. and And also, she's got you know various just basically housekeeping matters she's got to deal with with a with a, a conference that's made up of all different kinds of members and then the squad and I want somebody to weigh in about what they think about that they call themselves that, but I, I I don't know. I'm not quite sure what to make of that term. But yeah, I'm not um, a big
1: they, fan. Go ahead. Yeah,
0: their argument, which is you know we can't. We're fighting against a uh, political force here in the president and the Republican Party, which I think in this week in the responses to to these remarks, with the exception of somebody like Senator Joni Ernst, who was pretty straightforward in her response to this you know, it shows the adhesion between the president and his party, that 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 requires a certain level of tactics to fight against him. You know, the question here is, what is the the proper response in the environment you described, Emily? And I think there are plenty of Democrats who say as offensive as what the president has done, is that if you continue to just make this about how awful he is, um, that that A wasn't effective in 2018. What was effective was talking about policies that affect people's real lives, and that to respond too much and constantly—now, again, this is a special case—but too much and constantly ends up spending away your opportunity to talk to people about things that actually affect them in their lives and therefore sets you up in a bad position for the 2020 election. Right.
2: I think that's a really good point, John. I mean, you only need to look at what are the big sort of things happening besides this fight uh, over— Trump's tweets this week. It's the there's an impeachment movement that the that a House Democrat made that was quickly squashed, but they had to deal with this impeachment that the party wasn't really ready to deal with. There's a contempt motion for Bill Barr and Wilbur Ross around uh, a bunch of different things. No, the citizenship question, citizenship which we'll get question. You in a yeah. moment. And there's not <laughs> what we don't see is like a anything they're they're not able to break through with the things that people really care about around Around healthcare, around inequality, or, or on their winning issues, and it's it's all this personal stuff and and these fights about whether Democrats are socialists or communists. I also want to make one other point, which is kind of off point, but Emily, you touched on this earlier. One of the things that I find also chilling in this attack on on uh, Omar, in particular, is this line: "Oh, she hates Israel," and it, it's said about a lot of Democratic members of Congress and Democratic politicians. They hate Israel, and. I don't know. I have no idea whether Omar hates Israel or not. I don't. Not. I haven't she hasn't said studied, anything. I haven't that studied suggests it. That she hates Israel. I don't. I don't really care. It's like Israel is not the United States. This notion that 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 aligning oneself with the policies of of a particular Israeli government at any given time is patriotic as an it's, and it's an obligation of an American member of Congress, an American citizen, to to reflexively support whatever it is that an Israeli government is doing, is a totally demented idea. It's, a, it's completely wrong-headed. Israel is a country like any other country. It's been a traditionally incredibly strong ally. It has a very close relationship with the United States. But, but, but one's, one's fitness to serve in office and one's place in, in, in politics is not determined about what, by whether you happen to support the, the policies of the Israeli government at any given time. And, and that's, a, that's a very bad And vicious standard. And I know it's – they're doing it to try to peel away Jewish voters and Jewish donors, but it's it's unsavory.
1: I don't even think they're doing it for that reason. I think it's just like cover and like the worst kind of what about both sides like bullshit, honestly. I mean look like – I I agree with what you just said about the standard for judging American politicians. I think that it's important to be sensitive in the way that people criticize Israel to make sure it doesn't veer into anti-Semitism. I was not super excited about Elon Omar's tweet about the Benjamins for that reason. On the other hand, in the scope of like mistakes and rhetoric here, that is like a tiny grain of sand in, like, a mountain of invective from Donald Trump. And the notion that, like, the Jews and fears trumped up, sorry, fears about anti-Semitism are then an excuse for, you know, what's being unleashed here. It's just totally not OK.
0: Right, because remember, the what has been done here is an appeal to The idea that because somebody is of a different color of their skin and comes from a different heritage, that they are not American, which is directly in opposition to the idea of America as an equal and pluralist society. It is, it is. This goes at the heart of the thing that we elect presidents to protect and elect individual members of the House and Senate to protect too, but there's only one person who represents the entire country and therefore the entire package of the American experiment. And so this notion that you're somehow not allowed to exercise free speech as a duly elected member of congress because of your heritage or the color of your skin is like aimed right at the heart of this experiment and so when you bring in extraneous views that the person being attacked here happens to hold that that diverts from the main question and so it is a way of excusing away uh, the main question i would w- add one other tiny thing which is in defense of the president uh, some of his supporters have have shifted the ground and said well you know this is a terrible way to treat the office of the presidency i think they would have a stronger argument if the if if the president had not to the cheers of his supporters dismantled the norms and behaviors of the office of the presidency which is which is when he does it it's He's telling it like it is. He's not being PC. So when when he breaks all of the norms of decorum and behavior that we expect from a president, it's explained away. But then it's you. It can't then be used as a shield to protect him against criticism from you know four freshman members of Congress. So you can't have it both ways.
2: So so one response on the left and the Democratic Party should be to appeal to a kind of higher mindedness and and to seek unifying rhetoric and to diminish the name-calling and the personal attacks. But Trump is such a, a rich target for that, and, and Trump makes everyone on the left so angry and his behavior is so loathsome and his tarnishing, his, his smearing of the office of the presidency is, is so obvious that it's very hard for the left, people on the left, to, to not be low-minded should they, Emily, try to be more high-minded and, and and attempt to treat President Trump the way they might have treated President Bush or President Reagan or or President Ford?
1: I mean, I just feel like this is an impossible conundrum, right? Like you said earlier, this should be universally condemned then it doesn't happen, and then it becomes partisan, and we have some conversation about trying to take the high road. I just feel like it's it's just an impossible dilemma, and it's not the fault of Trump's critics, like, that you have this demeaned, office because of the occupant and then you're supposed to like hold on to your old standards it's just really tricky terrain and honestly I think they should do like whatever the politically salient thing is to do like the norms have when someone else changes the rules of the game and you continue to like call the lines fairly or do whatever you're supposed to do, you can retain your dignity, but you can also lose in the end. And I, I just don't, in any moment, it's really hard to tell which is the better play and which matters more in the end.
0: The sports metaphor is, is apt. The offense doesn't get to redesign the play every time they go to the line, which is their argument for what President Trump does. But I think that doesn't work totally, which is I think you can play a game on a different field. And I think if Democrats recognize that the president is baiting them, then I think they can decide to play on a different field, which is, uh, and this is basically, this is nothing special, this is the old line, you know, don't wrestle with the pig because the pig likes it and you get dirty, is that there are a host of issues that people are really worried about in the country that aren't getting addressed from national security to the environment to wages to job training. I mean, it goes on, the list goes on and on. Presumably, the Democratic Party has some answers to those issues. And they have a group of people who are who are pretty good with social media. Um, so taking the fight on those areas, and yeah, it might be a little difficult, but presumably if you're worthy of the presidency, you'll find a way to make it salient for people. I think that is the alternative route where they have perhaps more strength than getting into this kind of fight with the president, which isn't to say you just let it go by, You know, it's just what, how long you continue the fight on this turf.
2: Okay, round two, name something that's not boring
3: And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there.
2: Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gab Fest and other Slate podcasts. Today, we have a really special one, I think. We haven't done it yet, but I think it's going to be special. Um, we're going to interview a Kansas dairy farmer about what the world and climate change and the economy and tariffs looks like from his farm. He's a GapFest listener who wrote into us to talk a little bit about what he was up to, and we're really excited to talk to him. So go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member today. The Trump administration finally retreated from its plan, or maybe its scheme. I think it's probably more properly called a scheme to cram a citizenship question into the census. We've talked about this a lot before, about why they were trying to do it. They lost in the courts and couldn't figure out some way to circumvent the courts. So this census will not have a citizenship question for most people, although a small set of people will get it. Emily, why did they end up losing in the courts, number one, and why didn't they try some end run executive action to circumvent that loss?
1: They lost in the courts because Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, gave an utterly implausible, as the Supreme Court said, contrived rationale for adding the citizenship question, and the government never fixed that problem. They had a real a real problem in trying to start over again because the government had over and over in court represented that there was this hard deadline of June 30th for beginning to print the census forms. And so when President Trump, you know, on Twitter said we're not giving up, we're going full steam ahead, I've directed, you know, the justice department to try again in court. The problem for the lawyers was that in the rules of court when you make a series of representation and the litigation proceeds according to those representations, it's very hard to then just reverse course. It's not like politics where you get to just like turn everything on its head and there may not be any consequences. What had happened was because of that June 30th deadline, judges all along the way had limited the kind of discovery, in other words, the evidence gathering that the people challenging the citizenship question could do. And so there was this, I thought, devastating Brief That was filed by the ACLU and the plaintiffs in New York where they just listed all the times the government had said June 30th and essentially dared the government to change its mind. Then you have this kind of spectacle in which all of the career professional attorneys at the Justice Department either – quit this litigation or are removed from it. You have this new kind of hastily gathered team of lawyers. And I think they just hit a a dead end of, like, how they could possibly make a a legal argument that was going to hold up that would allow for pursuing an alternative rationale for the citizenship question. So that's why they lost. I mean, to me, what's interesting now is, first, What damage has already been done to the census? In other words, the people who were going to be potentially frightened away from answering because of the citizenship question, are they still going to be scared by all the publicity? But then also by, you know, ice raids and all the other anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from the Trump administration. Like there are still lots of reasons to fear a serious and distorted undercount in the census that could take away resources from cities and other places that have lots of immigrants or people who are networked into their population. So I think that's like one really important thing to watch. And then the second question is – now that we're in this world of the government collecting citizenship data in other ways, which is what Trump ordered, but actually also the Commerce Department had ordered this back in March twenty eighteen, like what is that going to look like, and and where is that going to lead?
2: So Emily, just on the on the circumvention question, before we get to the damage, but of the census, what what prevented. The administration from just saying, court decision doesn't matter, we're just going to go ahead and with executive action. We're going right. to just add it to the census. Why, why was that not doable?
1: Well, in the Constitution, the responsibility for conducting the census is squarely in the hands of Congress. And Congress has delegated that obligation to the Commerce Department. Nothing in there about the president and the presidency. And so that idea of an executive order that by fiat was going to add the citizenship question would have just gone right back into the court challenges. There was it couldn't like proceed on some other plane in which like, oh, okay well, now we'll just do it this way. No, that was not going to happen.
0: But Emily, why can't the Commerce Department as a member of the executive branch, why can't the president, does it, why doesn't he have authority over his departments that are in his branch of, of government?
1: I mean, he does, and they, he could have tried to make that argument in court, but he would have run right back into this problem of, but you said the deadline was June 30th, and, well, wait a second, what's the reason, right? Like, you right. can't have a whole fight over that and then have the president just sort of, like, swoop in with a stroke of his pen and obviate that whole discussion. The judges weren't going to go for but that. But I
2: guess what I was wondering is, is he could – why – you know, he he does control the executive branch. The executive branch does execute the census. They do print the forms. They decide what are on the forms. They are hiring the people who are going and delivering the forms. Why couldn't he have just said, you know what? I don't agree with the court decision here. I'm just going to print these forms because I'm confident that I'm right. And we're just going to print them. And that's the census we're going to distribute. And I dare you to do anything about it. Well, that
1: would have been a constitutional crisis, right? Because there there would have been immediate injunctions from judges. No, no, you cannot do it that way. And then you're defying an injunction from a federal court that goes right up to the Supreme Court. Then we really are like in the territory of the executive branch just defying the judicial branch. And I think even Donald Trump wasn't ready to do that. He backed off.
2: So what is the evidence that we have that the credibility of the census – is damaged for, you know, millions of people who are going to receive it. What is the evidence that we have that people who are maybe who are immigrants, people who cohabitate with people who are here without, without papers, that they are going to steer clear of the census?
1: Well, A year ago, two years ago, when the census first started doing focus groups and conducting surveys, they were seeing unprecedented levels of concern and fear and alarm among these groups. So that was like there from the get go. And it has to do with this moment in American history and all these attacks on immigrants and people, you know, from other countries that we have, alas, become accustomed to it is also true that in the wake of the furor over the citizenship question immigrant's rights groups and the states like california and other states new york texas that have large immigrant populations like the city of houston there was uh, there is a lot of concern i mean the states are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to try to get people to answer the census so we you know know from reporting from these places that people are scared and they don't want to give the government information about where they live and how to identify them and whether or not they're citizens. It's important to know that in the 50s, after the census had a real breach of confidentiality that led to or was at least connected to the internment of Japanese people during the World War II, Congress passed a law that made it a criminal violation to misuse census information, even to divulge it within the government. So there are protections. But the question is whether people believe in those protections in this moment of, you know, supercharged American politics about race and immigration. And think about it. If if, uh, the field workers for the census go out and Trump said some ice workers behind them, or in any way, people get the notion that there's a connection there. Like how are they supposed to trust that it is safe to answer these questions correctly?
0: the uh, I think the ice raids actually, to me, have a more of a chilling effect than this debate over the census. I'm this you know I, what do I know, but it seems to me that the what the ice raids have done is, is has reminded anyone that an official coming to your door might very well be an ice official, and like so somebody who says they're at your door related to some government thing would see I just wouldn't answer the door if I were a person who was not here legally, so um. That feels like, to me, the bigger chilling effect, but who, but, you know, I, I guess that's kind of moot. It doesn't matter. The chilling effect exists.
1: And then the other question is this ultimate goal of some people on the right, including inside the Trump administration. And the the ultimate goal is to have data that is reliable enough for the courts to accept it so that A state, a lot of states could choose, they have to pass laws, could choose to change the way they redistrict so that it would be based on the population of citizens rather than the population of human beings in that state. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before. What that does is shift power away from primarily Democratic areas toward white rural Republican tended areas. And it's just a, a big power shift that would change the composition of Congress, would change state legislatures, would have the effect of entrenching the minority rule of Republicans over time. And the way that is now going to take place within the Census Bureau, instead of using census data with the citizenship question, is to put together a combination of Social Security Administration data and data from the IRS and some other agencies and create more accurate counts and profiles of where non-citizens live. Now, on the one hand, it's perfectly legitimate for the government to try to figure out this question, right? Like, we have a really broad, kind of undefined span of idea of how many undocumented immigrants we have in this country and where they are. and. You can understand that there would be a neutral, even nonpartisan reason to try to settle out some of that for allocating resources and for other reasons. But the underlying rationale for the Trump administration is to change the political map in the ways I've been just describing. And that is – alarming. And it is also something that ultimately is going to be up to the next president, whoever that person is. It hinges on the next election results because the orders from the Trump administration have to do with what you do in 2021. And if there is a Democratic president, they can scrap this kind of political use of the data so that it's not as available or, you know, this particular project gets altered in some way. And then the other thing is state government elections also matter because it's going to take a real push from the right to, to get states to change the way they do redistricting and apportionment. We've always used people, not citizens.
0: By the way, it's got to be some kind of signal to anybody meeting a census worker that the president has declared that even if you're a citizen and a duly elected member of Congress, you're not really, you know, you should go back to where you came from. Yes. I mean, that's 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 a part of the mood music here, too.
1: Absolutely.
2: Fifty years ago on Saturday, the Apollo 11 mission landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong took humankind's first steps on the moon. It's been a pretty cruddy half century in space since then, I would say. It's been basically downhill. There was a space shuttle program devastated and crippled by two catastrophic disasters. There is the White Elephant International Space Station. There is no functioning crewed space program to speak of for the United States. There are some bright spots. There's the, there are the wonderful, uh, indomitable, perky Mars rovers that we've had. Uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson have their interesting private space efforts. And China and India have, have really made a strong effort to get into space. But I think it's safe to say that the public imagination is not obsessed with space flight in the way it was 50 years ago. President Trump has set a goal of returning to the moon by 2024 with a crewed mission. I keep saying "crewed," which is one of the. It is one of the actually really good transformations in spaceflight. It's going from manned to crewed, so crewed, C R E W E D. But it's a weird word to say. But that's what I'm saying. Crewed. We don't say manned spaceflight anymore. China is also aiming to land an astronaut on the moon and perhaps to explore the lunar poles and search for water there. And I think there's a some belief that that a moon base or some kind of moon moon landing will help with a mars exploration further on but the question really is like should we bother to do it like why bother to go back to the moon why even bother to go to mars why bother to have to send people into space anyway do either of you have a strong feeling that 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 the that we need to do this
1: Absolutely not. I am, like, the last person to go on an offense for space exploration. Like, I just – it is something I don't care about. I feel actually badly about how little I care about it. I feel like you need to defend this. You're like the science R&D explorer among us.
0: Well, I – and surely he's going to in a second. But I wish it had a little bit more – well, A, I love the private efforts to go into space because – that's great, and they'll they'll come up with all kinds of quirky and interesting things that we'll then learn about after they've done it. But there is something different than a private effort to get into space and the public role that a space race, not a space race, but a moonshot-type thing could play. And this feels so far, far, far from our current moment. But I think there is a national rallying benefit to a huge national project – and, and how that kind of lifts everybody's eyes up to the horizon as, a, as opposed to, you know, down at their Twitter screens, it reminds us that we're all part of one thing, we're a part of one planet, um, and, and not these silos into which we've barricaded ourselves. Having said all of that, is the moon mission the, the proper thing at the moment? I would prefer, I think, to see as a national and perhaps global race— Something that has more to do with the changing climate and that and you'd have to be creative about it. And it would require rhetorical skills from uh, a president who's the only one who can kind of tee this kind of stuff up that would have to. You can't just say, as failed politicians have since the moon landing, we need a moonshot for name your thing. Right. Because that rhetorically, that doesn't do anything for anybody. But I think that in, there is an opportunity for some politician someday to try to re the American fabric and that a large project like this ha- would play a role in that. And so, you know, I don't know, name your climate version of the moonshot. That's what I would be more in support of as a, as a governmental collective action uh, on this front. So it's not the moon, but it's something, you know, big and, and explorative like that.
2: John, you stole my thunder. That's exactly where oh, no. I was that's where I was going too. I mean, I think I think there was this so the neocons um in the nineties, during the Clinton presidency, Bill Kristol and the Weekly Standard crew had this whole movement of national greatness conservatism, which actually Newt Gingrich aligned with for a while. And the idea was there is this way in which the country can come together around big issues and it's it's both valuable because these the the project itself can be productive. And it's also valuable because it gives people a sense of shared purpose and that the space race did do that. And the Apollo missions did do that in the sixties. They genuinely were for many Americans, a source of unity and national pride and, and uh, were worth it um, for the good feeling and, and, and rhetorical value it produced. But that even in the mid nineties, it was hard to think of what the, what the next one would be. I mean, there was this idea it would be a manned crude excuse me crude mars mission there was this idea maybe of some other form of gigantic infrastructure and i agree with you today john that, it, that there there ought to be something like that and it ought to be around climate and it is unfortunately a because climate change is such a partisan political issue it's hard to get consensus and b it's not even clear what would excite the imagination i mean you can imagine like a huge geothermal energy plant of some sort or some you know co- some nuclear cold fusion plant that would, that would change how we could fuel everything in the world, maybe that would do it. But it's, it's not, it doesn't have that same human quality that sending a person in a, you know, or three people in a, in a capsule and strapped on top of a rocket and sending them off to who knows where at the risk of their lives, that that really excites the imagination. And so I really want to be in favor of sending humans to space. I really, like my heart wants to be for it. My heart wants to be for it because it it does fill you with joy to think about it and fill you with a sense of an incredible human accomplishment to think about it. And my favorite movie of the past ten years really was the Martian, which is a, a one of these you know, human stranded on on Mars and the, the the effort to rescue this person. And if you think of the resources required to rescue this person in in the movie, it was ridiculous. It was like you could have fed half a billion people for that. But it still you know, excites the imagination. But it just is not – the, the gains seem so marginal. Like, what? so what? We put a small little base on the moon. We're not going to colonize the moon. There's no u- universe in which the next 300 years there's going to be tons of people living on the moon. We have so many problems to fix on Earth. There's so many problems that we need to deal with here that the idea that, that this, this, the solution to our lives is in the stars – or in the planets is ludicrous right now. Like we are not going to live long enough to get a, to have a chance to settle Mars or settle the Moon, or or settle some star in a distant galaxy, unless we get ourselves straight on Earth now. And so, like the I, I want the rhetorical glory of it, but I am just hopeless about the all the problems that we have here that we need to fix first.
1: So. I was also thinking about The Marge Martian, however pathetic that is. And what's beautiful about that movie is the international cooperation that leads to the rescue of Matt Damon's character, whereas this announcement from Mike Pence seemed all to be with kind of, in a sort of fake way, juicing up these rivalries. Like, oh, China has this plan, so now we have to scurry over and try to beat them. It seemed the opposite of collaborative. Right.
2: Well, actually, that isn't. I, I interviewed Scott Kelly, Mm-hmm. Who's the there the, are these twin brother astronauts Mark Kelly and Scott Kelly. Mark Kelly is now running for Senate in Arizona. Is is Gabby Giffords' husband. Scott Kelly was on the International Space Station. He wrote a stupendous book about a year on the International Space Station. Just a it, it's a book that will it's a brilliant book and it will make you think. There's just no reason we should ever be in space. It's too dangerous. It's too precarious. This is a huge waste of time. But it, but one of the premises of the International Space Station is that it's this international collaborative effort, we're all in it, humanity's in it together, Russians, Canadians, Japanese, Americans. And what it turns out is that it's it's completely Balkanized. So that you, the Russians and Americans are together. They're occupying the space station together, but they basically don't do anything together. They don't even hang out together. They don't eat together. They don't work together. They are in different parts of the space station, which is a tiny you know, it's a it's a it's a big shoebox, but they barely talk to each other. And and, you know, friendships develop, but they're kind of reluctant, and the, and the ground controls don't talk to each other, and their ways of doing things are totally different. So so even this bastion of so-called international cooperation is a failure in that regard.
0: Can I say, uh, unrelated really to, well, when one of my favorite clips from this last week was, or in the historical looks back at the landing, was when at some point during one of his broadcasts, I guess when the landing is announced, but uh, Cronkite takes off his glasses and just says, who boy. And it's just like the wonder and joy and overwhelming bigness of it is, I'm trying to think of a public moment we've had where somebody would be so overwhelmed by the big joy and sense of, gargantuan accomplishment that would, that would, uh, that would elicit a hoo-boy. And I couldn't come up with one, but I want one, which is, I think, what we're fumbling around for here, you and me, David, who are uh, in favor of whatever the big thing is that we all go uh, align ourselves towards.
2: Yeah, that. hoo-boy. We want the who boy I, two, two other points on this. One is, um, which I didn't realize until I was reading about the moon landings of the past, the moon is an incredibly hostile place in ways that we, I think people think. Oh, we'll just go. We'll set up moon bases. It'll be great. We'll find some water there, which we'll extract and we'll use it for f- fuel, and also it'll be it'll supply us and great. But one, there's an enormous amount of radiation, and so it's it's not clear that humans could live on the moon for any length of time without just raising their cancer risk astronomically and and generally exposing themselves to to terrible health. Consequences. Two, and this was the new one to me, that the moon is covered in a in a fine silica dust.
1: Yeah, that's it, like eating glass if it gets in your throat. Yeah, it's so awful and, and toxic. It,
2: and it gets even if you're wearing your your spacesuit, it gets all in everything, and it's yeah. and it and it's causing you horrific damage to your lungs. It's like asbestos or something like that, which is just te- it's just tearing you apart. And so again, the notion that this is. It's just a—it's just a matter of we're—we're we're gonna terraform it. It's not gonna take too long. It's just—it'll <laughs> all be fine in, in like seventy-three years, except
1: for the toxic dust.
2: It's—it's it's just not the case. The other part about going to the moon that I think is—is is a mistake. Is—is is that so? In the sixties, that was—it had never been done, right? No one had been there. For us to go back 50 years later, it's sort of like it's like renewing your vows or something or it's or like going going on vacation to Cape Cod again. Like we're going to, really we're we going to Cape Cod. Why can't we go to why are we going to Vegas this year? Is there going to be year? a
1: traffic jam if we're driving to Cape Cod?
2: Definitely there'll be a traffic jam. The Chinese rover will be in front of us.
1: <laughs> exactly. Blocking the way on 95 North.
2: No, It just doesn't. It's just not even it, even in the Mars might excite the imagination. Mars is Mars would excite the imagination. The moon does not excite the imagination. Emily, you're... The only
1: thing that would excite my imagination is signs of life out there somewhere. I would really change my tune on this if there was actual life. Like, I could get interested in that, life that could communicate. And I realize that we're not going to find that life maybe unless we look. But on the other hand, maybe that's not true. And we'll just should sit tight and wait for them to contact us.
0: I would settle for life on Earth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> signs of it. Yeah, but I maybe, the, maybe the, the project that would excite the imagination would be to go to a place where there is no social media. It's like we're gonna find we're gonna find a world with no social media, where you can't you cannot add anything to Instagram. Maybe that's really tweet. what we're
1: craving from the nineteen sixties. Yeah.
2: Um, all right. Well, so we're not going. None of us, even I, don't want to go back to the moon. Even John doesn't want to go back to the moon. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're when you're having a a lunar cocktail when you're having a what 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 cocktails are are moon derived? There must be something. Uh,
0: yeah, something without a little something without silica in it. You really want to don't want a dirty martini if it's silica.
2: Silica. <laughs> Do you want your dirty martini with silica or without? I would for a martini. I would probably take a little bit of silica. So, John, what is your what is your silica laden dirty martini?
0: Uh, well, I have uh, both. My chatter has both an earnest side and then a slightly silly side. The earnest side is something I learned about here while I was at Stanford. And it's called America in One Room. And uh, Larry Diamond is involved and he, he, um, he introduced me to what it is. And what basically what it is, is a meeting of 500 Americans and they're gonna meet in Texas in September. And it is a deliberate, it's part of the Stanford Center for Deliberative Democracy, and it's a deliberative poll. And basically, they're taking 500 Americans who've been chosen by the National Opinion Research Center. So it's a representative sample of the country. They're flying them all to Dallas, and they are going to be given briefings on major issues of the day, the environment, foreign policy, the economy, healthcare. And they will go through moderated sessions in groups of 40, and the idea is to basically if we think that political conversation has been ruined by social media negative partisanship the fact that we use all of our faculties to defend our partisan position rather than using our faculties of reason and critical thinking to find out what the best truth of something is this is to an attempt in a group of 500 people who all have different views to try to unwind that and to have moderators who work in these groups of 40 to how uh, people explore ideas and solutions and come up with a set of questions for the presidential candidates who will then, if they if this works out, all answer these questions in some sort of public forum. There will also be polling to see how people have changed their minds and not and it's to me it seems like a, a really interesting experiment in kind of the best possible democratic deliberation the way we would like it to possibly be, but the way it never actually is. So I'm really fascinated to see how all of that turns out and whether any candidates would actually want to be in front of such a crowd. Because once everybody's talked through these issues and tried to basically leech the partisanship out of them, they might get quite detailed and actually tee up complicated questions for for candidates, not all of whom could answer questions of complexity. So that's the good government chatter part. The second is my new favorite expression, which is in Italy. The term umarell, U-M-A-R-E-L-L, refers to men of retirement age who pass the time watching roadworks offering unwanted advice. In England, they call these people sidewalk superintendents. And so, and in America, they call them Twitter users. But um, it's-
2: But, um-, to, um. <laughs>
0: This is my favorite expression for basically backseat driving or Monday morning quarterbacking. But the idea of spending your retirement on the porch, giving unwanted advice to road crews, it seems like a a kind of beautiful description of a lot of what we have in American political life right now.
2: This is slightly different, but I would happily spend my retirement either at the end of a runway at an airport or overlooking a really busy train yard. Just watching stuff take place. Stuff like come and go. I would watch. There was a. I was in, lived in Japan for a few months and we were next to a an overpass, which was 13 tracks wide. And so there's always some train. And Tokyo trains, you know, J- Japanese trains are so awesome. There's always a train coming and going. I just could sit there forever watching the trains come and go. That, that's neither here nor there. Well, it was there, actually. Emily, what uh, your silica dust laced cocktail chatter is about what?
1: Justice John Paul Stevens, uh, former justice of the Supreme Court, died this week at the age of 99. And there's lots of interesting, illuminating uh, thinking about him going on in various outlets. I especially recommend a piece that his former clerk, Jamal Green, wrote in The New York Times. And Linda Greenhouse's obit in The Times was really like a masterful example of the genre I wrote a piece about how Justice Stevens changed his mind over time about the death penalty. I'm kind of obsessed with judges changing their minds. I'm not really sure why it matters to me so much. I feel like the idea that they're infallible from the start, that there's this Rigid set of values or principles they bring to the job that's impervious to evidence. I think that just like bothers me so much that when they show mental flexibility and a willingness to rethink, I get all excited. And I got to interview Justice Stevens about this a few years ago. So it was also on my mind. You know, the other point to make about Justice Stevens is that we are unlikely to ever see an appointee like him again. And what I mean by that was that when Gerald Ford had a choice of who to appoint to the Supreme Court in 1975, he picked this, like, pragmatic antitrust lawyer who wasn't known for his ideological views one way or the other. That is not the litmus test for Republican Supreme Court appointees or lower court judges anymore. And to some degree, that's true on the Democratic side, too. There's more and more a call for people to have previously expressed views on a variety of hot-button, divisive topics. And what you see in someone like Justice Stevens, and it was true about a number of people appointed to the court in the 60s and 70s, especially by Republican presidents, were people who were able to evolve in the job because they didn't have these like hardline entrenched positions when they came in. And ultimately, that's what we want from judges. They're supposed to be making... Rulings based on the evidence in front of them. So goodbye to Justice Stevens, and uh, and thank you for providing that model.
0: I would add one other quick thing about the political part of this, which is um, so interesting, is that Ford named Stevens while he was in a fight with Ronald Reagan, who was trying to get the Republican nomination in 1976, and Reagan didn't use the selection of a Supreme Court justice as a cudgel to attack. Ford, he was coming at Ford from the right, saying Ford wasn't conservative enough. But even though that was his case, he didn't choose to use the judiciary to, you know, clobber Ford. And and today, you can imagine that a person coming to the right would say basically that the moderate president was naming a squish who was going to, you know, undo abortion rights. It's just like this pre-time in American presidential and judicial history, which you totally correctly identified.
1: Good point. I didn't even know that. That's so interesting.
2: Ten points to Gryffindor. Exactly. Um, I want to chatter about a fantastic story, also space-themed in the New York Times this week, about a man named Ed Dwight. Ed Dwight was an Air Force pilot, African-American, who in the 60s, as the U.S. space program got going, there was this recognition, this, this recognition among a few people in the American government that it might be a real coup for the U.S. to have an African-American astronaut. And Edward R. Murrow, in fact, seems to have been the original source of this, who was then head of the U.S. Information Agency, and he, he suggested this to the Johnson administration. And so there was a hunt made throughout the U.S. government. And at that time, the only people that they were looking for to be astronauts, which was a whole other topic of discussion, the only people they were looking for were pilots, and so they were looking around. Who are there African American pilots? And they found this guy Ed Dwight, who was an Air Force pilot. And he was selected, sort of selected for astronaut candidacy. He was hyped up, and he was an incredibly interesting, charismatic guy. And he was sort of put in the program. And then he got hosed, essentially. And this is the story of how he got hosed. And in part, and a lot of it seems to be Chuck Yeager, who. Whose behavior towards him as a Chuck Yeager was responsible for for a kind of grooming an astronaut grooming part of the program, and Yeager seems to have treated Dwight in this quite abusive way, and Dwight ended up not not becoming an astronaut, and there would be no African American astronaut in the U.S. for 20 years afterwards. And and Dwight then went on to a remarkable career as a sculptor, uh, and it's just a great story. I really recommend it. It's a story about racism. It's a story about you know, an effort to ameliorate racism. It's a story about one man who is, has really remarkable human qualities and, and it's a story about the space race. So I recommend it a lot. We also, of course, are collecting your chatters and you guys are tweeting chatters to us at At Slate Gabfest and sharing them on the Facebook page. Please keep them coming. They continue to delight and amaze the senses. This week, Miranda Drake tweeted us a great, <laughs> hilarious story. Emily, you will like this. I assume you like this. And it's actually from 2018 and what it is, it's a data-driven exposé of the inferiority of women's pockets. So in 2018, Jan Dean and Amber Thomas in a publication called The Pudding, which I do not know, did a elaborate survey of the size of pockets in pants sold to men and women. That and they, is so interesting. And they took and they, what they was particularly brilliant is that they they got rid of the idea that oh, men are bigger than women. They took s- pants that were the same size, so a 32-inch waist. So it's aimed at a person who's got the same waist size, and the same brands. And they just carefully measured the pockets, the front and back pockets.
1: And is this why men carry wallets in their pockets, and I can never figure yes. out how that would possibly yes. work?
2: Yeah, I've always been—I've always had this prejudice. I'm like, well, it's your own fault. You could just put your wallet there. It's not—it's not—it's—it's it's, it's not your fault, Emily. <laughs>
1: it's not my fault. Oh my god, pockets this is don't. For example, especially pockets. the side pockets. Yeah. The yeah. F-
2: the front po- so the back pockets are basically the same size. Yeah, it,
1: that's my intuition. All right.
2: Uh, but the front pockets, you, there is not a single pocket in the pants they examined where you could fit a phone from a, any of the major phone manufacturing brands. Any, not even one phone. Whereas every man's, man's pant has a pocket where you can stick your phone. So
1: I really find this information to be a great relief to me. All the times I have handed my husband my phone at a dinner party or wherever, a cocktail party there you go he's always really nice about it
2: but he shouldn't you shouldn't have to have to do that <laughs> he shouldn't be able to get the moral credit for being nice about it we should okay. all be able to be pocketed wherever we want to be that is our show for today The Gab is produced this week by Danielle Hewitt because Jocelyn is uh, I hope on vacation somewhere I don't know and we also had a special researcher this week from Claire Santa Moore. our normal researcher is Bridget Dunlap and I'm sure Bridget is also researching assiduously as well you can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Audio. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Please join us for our show in the Twin Cities on September 18th. Go to slate.com live to get tickets for that. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We have a guest today for Slate Plus. We have a a special guest. Jason Schmidt is a dairy farmer in Kansas. Actually, I'm not sure where in Kansas. He's going to tell us in a second. He's a Mennonite. He's a fifth-generation Kansas farmer. And the reason he's with us is that a few weeks ago, some of you may remember, I put a call out on the Gabfest. I was looking for some kind of useful, productive, fun activity to do this summer, and got amazing responses from so many people, but one of the ones that really struck me was from Jason. Now, Jason lives in Kansas. I cannot go work on his Kansas farm; more of the pity. But the email he wrote was so interesting that I thought, let's let's hear more about him and let's hear more about his life and hear more about what he sees from where he is and and the challenges that he's facing as a farmer. So, Jason, welcome to the. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation.